Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Through Conversations podcast, where we invite the world's most brilliant minds and ask them the most pressing questions in today's world. Today, I'm joined by the amazing Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar is a professor and author who is worldwide known for his popular courses on positive psychology and leadership. He received his PhD in Organizational Behavior and Psychology from Harvard University, where he also taught the course Positive Psychology, which was one of the most popular courses across the university. In addition to his academic work, Ben Shahar has written several books on the topics of happiness and leadership, including Happier, Being Happy, and The Pursuit of Perfect. He's also a renowned speaker and has served as a consultant to organizations such as Google and the World Bank. And he's also the founder of the Happiness Studies Academy. Dr. Ben Shahar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me here, Alex. Great to be here. I'm very excited because, you know, you touch on a topic that is very fun to every single human being in this planet, which is how to be happy and what happiness truly is. And I'm very curious, when did that spark really first ignited in your heart? When did you find out about this concept of happiness and how you became interested in really diving deep into it? Mm. So I became interested in happiness because of my own unhappiness. <laughs> Now I was, um, you know, on a path um, uh, as, a, as an athlete. I played squash as a, as a student. Um, and, and things went well, at least when, uh, when I looked at my life from the outside, but from the inside, what I experienced was mostly, um, you know, a sense of, you know, just sadness and even more so anxiety most of the time. And I didn't understand why, because the models that I had been taught, whether explicitly or implicitly had always been, you know, if you want to, to have, to flourish, if you want to have a happy life. Well, then, uh, then, then succeed, do well. Now, what's succeeding? I was doing well in, in, in academics, in, in sports, um, the things that were important to me at that time, but uh, to no avail. I was still unhappy. And uh, this happened when I, was, uh, when I was an undergrad at Harvard. I started off as a computer scientist and uh, in my second year switched to philosophy and psychology just to figure out uh, what was going on here. Why aren't I happy and uh, how can I become happier? Mm. Yeah, This was 30 years ago and I've been on, on, on that path uh, ever since. Wow. So it was probably around your mid-20s that this happened? Uh, correct. I was in my early 20s um, and... Uh, And uh, I started exploring it by, by reading uh, people like Aristotle and, uh, and, uh, and Lao Tzu and, and, and then psychologists like uh, Ed Dinner and, and Martin Seligman. And, um, and I was fortunate to have teachers, mentors who were interested in this topic. The field of positive psychology came onto the scene a few years later. So it was, uh, it was a good time, as is today to be involved in this field. Yeah. One of the teachers that you had, I was doing some research before having this conversation was the author of the six pillars of self-esteem, correct? Correct. And Nathaniel Brandon. Nathaniel Brandon. Yeah. And his book is really powerful. And that was, you were really lucky to have him as a, as a mentor, I suppose. 
Um, very much so. Actually, let, let me tell you a, a, a brief story about how that came about. Yes. Uh, so I was, um, at that time, I was a student in the University of Cambridge in England. And uh, this was a Sunday morning. And uh, I was just, you know, lying in bed and um, and uh, thinking about how amazing it would be if uh, Aristotle was alive. Hmm. And uh, if I could, uh, you know, hang out with him and talk about eudaimonia, you know, okay. about happiness and flourishing, um, and 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 I was filled with, you know, some, you know, sadness, and you know that that, that he wasn't around and I couldn't. But I said, well, I have I have his uh, his books, you know, I can enjoy those. Um, but then I I reflected some more and I said, wait a minute, you know, actually my Aristotle is alive today, and that's Nathaniel Brandon. Uh, because I'd read his his stuff when I was an undergraduate, and he really um, impacted my life in in a deep and meaningful way. And at that moment, I got out of bed and wrote a letter. We didn't have email then, but I wrote a letter to uh, Nathaniel Brandon, who was living in California, and uh, asked him to be my my mentor. Wow my teacher. And uh, we ended up, uh, it took a few months back and forth, but we ended up uh, meeting and, and, and um, I was uh, working under him, learning from him directly. So he, you know, and, and when he passed away a few years ago, I wrote an, an article, which I titled, uh, where I told the story and I titled the article, My Aristotle. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I'll, I'll read that article and also put it in the show notes for every listener to find it out as well. And, you know, what was one core idea that really, really stuck with you from, from him? What was really a guiding light that you said, this has to be something I need to explore more? Yeah, good. So um, uh, hands down, the idea of uh, acceptance. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I ended up... Uh, you know, one of my books is on uh, perfectionism. And um, in, in that book, I explore the idea of accepting and embracing our emotions, of giving ourselves the permission to be human. Because one of the greatest barriers to happiness is the fact that we reject unhappiness. Mm. Uh, because there is a paradox, and the paradox is, is very simple. If uh, I experience sadness, and I say to myself, you know, Tal, you shouldn't experience sadness. You know, you're the happiness professor. What happens? Immediately, sadness goes up. Or let's say I experience envy towards a friend. And I say to myself, Tal, you're better than that. You know, you shouldn't experience envy towards uh, someone you care about. Immediately, that envy strengthens, it intensifies because of the paradox, which is when we reject painful emotions, they grow stronger. And when we accept and embrace them, and this is Nathaniel Brandon's first key pillar of self-esteem, when we embrace and accept the emotion, whatever that emotion is, then it doesn't overstay its welcome. Then we're much more likely to first... Uh, overcome it and second to act to behave in a in an appropriate way so if i accept envy i'm more likely to actually behave in a generous and benevolent way if i accept rather than reject sadness i'm more likely to go out of my way and do things that will contribute to my happiness well yeah that's 
really interesting and it also brought to my to my mind this quote i don't know if it was really from carl jung but i think he said what you resist persists so whenever you're trying to really repress something or rather mute it down it just keeps a much uh, firmer hold of yourself and another pillar of of the of self-esteem is one of the big ones that i feel your your work has been truly a landmark and uh, uh, of it which is self-responsibility which is we can choose to be happy is it is a choice it is a synapses in our brain that we can keep exercising so what is one of the biggest obstacles you think people find when they hear that happiness is a choice yeah so this this is certainly a very important uh, pillar of self-esteem and of happiness uh, taking responsibility um specifically here what i find which is very uh, pervasive is what i've come to call the double standard when it comes to to happiness why because people think that if they read this book whether it's nathaniel brandon's book or 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 or, or aristotle or uh, sonia lubomirsky if they read a book on unhappiness uh, and they really get it and understand that book then they'll become happier or if they attend a, a workshop or take a, a a class or um or or get a degree in in positive psychology then they'll be happier well that's unfortunately not the case um i mean think about it let's say you know do people believe that if they read a book on tennis <laughs> they'll become tennis players or if they read uh, or if they go to a lecture on uh, on classical music they'll become classical musicians of course not you need to practice you need to practice you know on the court or on on the piano or whatever you need to put in the work the effort you need to take responsibility for your improvement whether it's in music or sports or happiness and um you know so so many people you know would say to me oh you know tal i i read your book and and i and i said you know that that's wonderful thank you so much what are you doing about it mm. or or people would go even a step further you know my my book my book is next to your bed and you know and i say to them you know that that's great but you know i haven't yet mastered the art of impact through you know brain waves that come from books you need to do something about it it's not enough to read something or to have something close to you you need to act you need to take responsibility and that applies to music and it applies to happiness yeah and like like you say you you need to practice what you preach and you know it's like when i began this conversation happiness is something we all really look forward to and you argue that it's the ultimately the the our most important currency happiness and you've written so many books so many articles you've done a course focusing on positive psychology and it seems that we don't really grasp the idea that it is the ultimate currency our world isn't really founded upon this philosophy that happiness truly is what is going to make us become the best version of ourselves or rather the is it 
the pursuit of happiness that will make us happier. So which is kind of like a paradox. So what are your thoughts on, you know, how do we think of happiness and how would you wish we should think of happiness? Yeah. You know, um, you, you mentioned the paradox and there's another important paradox here that, uh, Um, that we need to keep in mind, and I say we, um, that, that includes uh, positive psychologists uh, or experts in, in the field who very often miss this uh, important point. So this is um, based on research by uh, Iris Moss. Iris Moss is uh, uh, teaches in um, San Diego, I believe, and um, her, her research shows that people who value happiness, for whom the pursuit of happiness is important, you know, who wake up in the morning and say, you know, I want to be happy, happiness matters to me, they actually end up being less happy. Mm. And, um, and that's a problem. Because on the one hand, you know, we all want to be happy, it's important to us almost by, you know, by our very nature. Um, We're also told that if you increase levels of happiness, you become more creative, more productive, your relationships improve. You actually live longer if you increase levels of, of happiness. So you don't just live uh, better, you live more. Um, so there are all these benefits to happiness. And yet, if you wake up in the morning and say, I want this, I want happiness, it's important to me, you become less happy. And the question is, what do we do about it? I mean, do we do we kid ourselves? Do we tell ourselves, okay, um, I, I, I don't want to become happier. Wink, wink, I actually do. <laughs> of course, self-deception is not the way. What do we do? We pursue happiness indirectly. Let me, let me explain this through a metaphor that helped me better understand it. So let's say, you know, you, you walk outside and it's a, it's a bright, sunny day. And you look at the sun. What's going to happen if you look directly at the sun? It's actually going to hurt you. It's going to burn your eyes. You're going to tear up. So looking directly at the sun is not helpful. But what if I take the sunlight and break it down, say, using a prism, and then look at the broken down ray of light, the colors of the rainbow? Then I can look at it and enjoy it and savor it. So looking at the sun directly hurts. Looking at, at it indirectly is pleasurable, enjoyable. It's the same with happiness. Pursuing it directly hurts. Saying to myself, happiness is important. I choose to be happy. I want to be happy. That's not helpful. That will lead to less happiness. However, if I break happiness down into its metaphorical colors of the rainbow, and then pursue those, then I'm pursuing happiness indirectly and can become happier. The question then is, what are these metaphorical colors of the rainbow? And um, again, there, there are many answers to this. You know, the, the answer that, that, that I argue for is um, what I've come to call the spire elements of happiness. And the spire elements, uh, spire stands for spiritual well-being, physical well-being, intellectual well-being, relational, and emotional well-being. So, for example, under uh, spiritual well-being, it would be about being present, being in the here and now, or doing something that is meaningful and important to me. 
So indirectly pursuing happiness could be engaging in meditation. Indirectly pursuing happiness could be finding things to do that are meaningful to me, that are important to me. Or under physical well-being, the P of spire, exercising regularly is uh, a form of indirectly pursuing happiness or eating more healthfully or intellectual well-being, learning new things. That's an indirect way of pursuing happiness or relational well-being, investing in the people I care about and who care about me. So if I wake up in the morning and say, I want to be happy, that's a problem. But if I, if I say, I want to invest more in my relationships and actually do that, then I do become happier because I'm indirectly pursuing happiness. When it comes to the E of spiral, emotional well-being, well, that's about embracing painful emotions, what we spoke about a few minutes ago. It's about cultivating pleasurable emotions, such as gratitude. These are all indirect ways of pursuing happiness. This is about enjoying the colors of the rainbow rather than being hurt by the direct sunlight. Wow. It's... Thank you for, for that. And it's really impressive because we sometimes we get caught up in the end goal, which is happiness and seeing it as an end goal in and of itself, rather than as an externality, rather than as an, as an outcome of the things we pursue and what your work has been trying to, to teach us and your book Happier as well. And I really appreciate the that you mention the pressure that amounts when one is trying to pursue happiness because a lot of people, including myself, wake up and say, I want to be happy now. How am, I how am I not happy now? Like, this is crazy. So it brings not even unhappiness. It just doubles up the pressure. It doubles up the unhappiness, which is you're telling yourself that you're unhappy. So you're meta unhappy. It's, mm -hmm. it's crazy. And For, for us who really are on the stepping stones of, of trying to find this, this foundation that you discuss, this spiral of well-being that you discuss, you mentioned gratitude, you mentioned meditation, you mentioned relationships, but if you had to choose one for a person who really is a beginner, really has to start from, from the get-go, which one would be your, your, one, your first one to, to go to? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give you a couple of answers to that. The first answer is the one that's easiest for you, the one that's most fun for you. Why? Because that's the one where you're most likely to persist. You see, when we talk about happiness or the spire uh, model of happiness, we're not talking about five distinct elements. We're talking about five interconnected elements. Mm. And therefore, when everything is interconnected, one thing affects everything else. Um, so let's say it's the easiest for you to now invest more time in your relationships. Well, that will affect every other area of your, um, of your, of your life and your happiness as a result, because it will also provide you with pleasurable emotions. It will also, um, make you more uh, curious through the conversations with your loved ones. It's also very meaningful to you. You're also present when you're in conversation with your loved ones. So it has a, it will also make you physically healthier. There's a lot of research connecting relationships with physical health. So, um, so you can start there. Or, and this is my second answer to your question, and this is where 
I find that for most people in today's world, yeah. this is the one that's most relevant. Um, become physically active. You know, the research on physical exercise is quite literally mind-boggling. <laughs> the research shows that regular physical exercise, as little as 30 minutes three times a week, has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. Wow. So introducing movement into our life. And by the way, it doesn't have to be, you know, a 30-minute gym session. It could be deciding, you know, every hour, you know, to get up and move for one or two minutes you know, to run on the spot or to climb upstairs. Um, but movement is critical, of course, for physical health, no less so uh, for mental health. And because everything is interconnected, once you start moving more, your relationships are actually going to improve. You're going to become nicer to be around. Um, if you um, exercise regularly, you're also going to be thinking better because blood is flowing to your brain. Um, if you uh, if you're more physically uh, active, of course your emotional well-being is going to be uh, impacted. So this whole spiral element will be affected by just being more physically active. Well, who would have thought that our most impressive and most breakthrough drug was always within us? You know, the the biggest pharmaceutical intervention was doing exercise which is impressive. And we're living in a world where there is not enough of a premium for us to be moving. We're always stuck in a nine to five job or we're always trying to, to chase what you've argued that really doesn't lead to happiness, which is external success. You know, trying to climb the corporate ladder, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to chase a title. So, how can we, you know, move from a world? I, I'd like to start discussing also technologies that are influencing our workplace and the mm. dangers of, of this uh, affecting our chase for happiness for, through external success, which namely is artificial intelligence. But how can we truly keep chasing that external success? Like you say, bringing that metaphor of the sun so that success becomes an outcome, but not be so inclined, not be so obsessed with the success that ultimately makes us feel worse about ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of um, what determines our happiness levels are our expectations. And, you know, people talk about the importance of having high expectations. And, um, and that's true when it comes to success. It's not as true when it comes to, to happiness. Um, when it comes to happiness, what we need are realistic expectations. Let me give you an example um, from two different areas. So the first example is on a personal level, what I spoke about earlier. If my expectation is that I'm going to experience joy and fun and laughter all of the time, yeah. that's a problem. If my expectation is that well, right now I'm not experiencing joy, fun, um, and laughter all the time. But when I become an expert in happiness, then I'll experience it all the time. That's a problem. Because as I often remind my students, only two kinds of people don't experience painful emotions, such as sadness or anger or frustration or anxiety. Psychopaths and dead people. 
Everyone else experiences these emotions. Yeah. So if I have the false expectation, the unrealistic expectation, that being happy means experiencing only pleasurable emotions, that's a problem. And that will only lead to more frustration. That's where we get to the paradox. To have realistic expectations is to say, yeah, I, I, I can experience less of them. I can become happier over time. But I will always have these difficult experiences. I will always experience painful emotions. They're part and parcel of every life. That's realistic expectations. Second, think about relationships. You know, what do I expect when, when I commit to a person? Let's say I get, I get married. Well, the expectation is that we'll live happily ever after. <laughs> that this passion and... and, and, and and, 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 and love and lust will remain constant or will even rise over time as we cultivate our relationship. Well, not so. You can be sure that in every relationship, even in the best of relationships, there'll be ups and downs. There'll be challenges and, and, and conflicts and gridlocks and difficulties and hardships. But if my expectation is, you know, a happily ever after or, you know, happier ever after... Then, then that's a problem. And it will lead to more frustration rather than to happiness. So to have realistic expectations is, is critical because then when we experience the challenges in a relationship or personally, then we're much more likely to accept and embrace them. You know, in, um, in Buddhist thought and, and more recently in uh, scientific research, there is talk about two levels of suffering. The first level of suffering is inevitable. It happens uh, because there, is, there are challenges in life, because of what we encounter in life. And, you know, as I said, everyone uh, encounters this kind of suffering for um, global reasons, for personal reasons, because for hormonal reasons, it doesn't matter. We all experience suffering sometimes. That's first level. Second level of suffering is when we reject the first level. It's when I say to myself, I shouldn't be suffering. I shouldn't be unhappy. I shouldn't experience this pain. Then that increases the, the initial level of suffering and we have a second level. The first level of suffering is inevitable. The second level of suffering is a choice. And if we truly accept and embrace what life has to offer, not resign to it, accept it, that it is part of life, then we're much less likely to augment it, to increase it, and to experience the second level of suffering, which is a choice. Well, like, like you say, um, part of uh, the treasure of being alive is changing our frameworks, our mind to to think that suffering or rather negative emotions that have, we have connotated like sadness, all of these emotions that really bring us down, quote unquote, if we reframe them, like you say, as part of this human experience that we all share, they can bring out the best experiences we have in life because we've been told that happiness should be the ultimate, should be the ultimate feeling we have always. And rather than learning from the insights when one is unhappy, 
when one is sad, when one is feeling a downward emotion, we tend to isolate that side of us and try to pursue more happiness, which like you say, we've been talking about is the paradox. And also your first intervention, which was acceptance. If we accept our whole humanity, that ultimately leads to that ray of light, which is happiness from the sun. So I would like to get into the workplace, which is rapidly shifting with new technologies such as artificial intelligence and really promise to change drastically the whole world around us. So Dr. Ben Shahar, I'm curious to know how will these technologies think you think will affect our workplace and how should companies and also employees and people who work in companies are starting to create new ideas should approach these technologies with the hopes of keeping happiness as a positive outcome in their companies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, think about this question. Is electricity good or bad? And the answer to this question is, well, it depends. If you use uh, electricity for, uh, you know, life support or, um, you know, to light up a room or to bring people uh, together, it's a wonderful thing. If you use electricity to electrocute an innocent person, it's a bad thing. <laughs> so it's the same with um, just about every kind of technology. What do you use it for? And under what do you use it for, I also include how much do you use it? You know, take, for example, um, smartphones. Smartphones are wonderful. You know, the fact that I can, you know, reach my, my, my kids or friends whenever that I have access to so much information and knowledge and music and, and film, that, that, that's incredible. Um, however, when it's overused, when we have quite literally become addicted to it, that's a problem. And levels of happiness have gone down significantly as a direct result of the rise of uh, the smartphone, whether in children or, or adults. So how do we use it? How much do we use it? That's, um, that, that, that's important. The same with the social media. You know, social media is terrific. You know, I, I just got in touch recently with uh, uh, my best friend from elementary school. I hadn't seen him in uh, in 40 years. Wow. 40 years. And we got in touch thanks to social media. Amazing. At the same time, people are addicted to social media and it's leading to much unhappiness and lower levels of self-esteem um, in, uh, in, in people. So... So that's a problem. Let's take another example. You know, most recently, the uh, the artificial intelligence uh, program that, that 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 came out, you know, Chat GPT, yeah. which uh, you know everyone is talking about and, and using right now, and it's amazing. You know, what it does is 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 wonderful, and there is a potential downside to it because it could prevent many people from going through the process of making mistakes mm. and learning how to write better. And writing better is connected to thinking better. Now, I'll give you a personal example. So when I was uh, an undergraduate, um, 
um, I did, and, and, and shifted from computer science to philosophy and psychology, I hadn't had much experience writing. You know, my worst grade in school was in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in expository writing. I was all into math, computers, technology. And suddenly I started, I took a writing class. And in the writing class, I wrote the following. We had to write about um, an experience we had. And I wrote about an, an experience I had with um, with my girlfriend where uh, uh, we met in, uh, you know, for, for, for a date. And I wrote the following sentence. I actually wrote the following sentence. I wrote, and we looked into each other's eyes and we knew that we would be together forever. Now, that is very cheesy <laughs> writing. That is actually not good writing. However, what happened then, I submitted it and my teacher gave me feedback about it and told me, you know, show rather than tell, you know, write about the situation and, and, and describe the, the, the scene where you were. And she taught me how to write better than Forever, you know, together forever. And as a result of that mistake or poor writing, I became a better writer. Now, what if I had at that time an AI assistant who would just write a better paper for me? I would not learn how to become a better writer. And as a result, my thinking would be less clear. My thinking would be less sharp, less focused. We learn how to write better by writing poorly. We learn how to think better by learning how to write better. And my concern is that many of these technologies, by helping us in one way take shortcuts, will also prevent us from learning things that can't be learned other than through taking the long road. Wow. Yeah, like you say, it's the long road really is where the gems of wisdom arrive and the mistakes in and of themselves are really the treasure of the long road, which I appreciate you saying that. And another concern that I had, which really connects with, with your expertise, is the potential displacement of the people who work in companies who will, quote-unquote, be replaceable from these technologies. So this is a, going to be a big shift. We're probably going to see this in the next decade, perhaps before. So how should people manage this change in the in their industries, this disruption of technology? And also, how do you think people should use their time, people should spend, you know, this free time, which could be a gem of, of treasure as well, to pursue the things that we've talked about here, the foundations yeah. for happiness? So when it comes to the change that this disruptive technology will have, there are things that we know and there are things that we don't know. Let me begin with what we don't know. We don't know whether this will actually um, take away more jobs than it will create. Mm -hmm. Because people were having this very conversation around the Industrial Revolution, yeah. where they were saying, oh, now we have those machines, people are are going to become redundant, people are going to be out of a job. Well, it turned out to be the opposite. The Industrial Revolution created more jobs than it, um, than it destroyed. Yes, people no longer had to, or as 
many people had to lift heavy things because we had machinery for that, but it created other jobs, whether it's, you know, driving, uh, driving this uh, truck or, uh, or, 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 or running this machine. So we don't know that this new technology will actually, um, on the whole, uh, hurt the job market. It may actually create more jobs than it takes away. Wow. This we don't know. What we do know is that the kind of jobs that will be looked for, that will be required in the future, are different than there were required in the past. Those mechanical jobs, machines are going to do, and they're going to, and they do it a lot better than we do. However, the jobs that require thinking and creativity, and um, and where emotions are um, part of the job, or or, um, um, or or connecting to to emotions is a part of the job. Well, that probably machines are not going to be able to do, and probably not for the next, I don't know how many how many years. So. What we do know is that elements related to creativity and innovation, there will be a premium. There's already, but there will even be more of a premium on on those. And as a result of that, what we need to do is not learn something specific necessarily, but rather learn how to learn. Or in other words, to become lifelong learners. Because this is the only way we can remain creative this is the only way we can remain innovative. This is the only way where we will have um, a relative advantage over the mechanical things that um, that machines can can do. We need to be prepared to reinvent ourselves for this new world, and then to reinvent ourselves again and again. And for that, we have to be learners, curious, asking questions, exploring constantly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Dr. Ben Shahar, you know, you've been a consultant in so many companies, including Google and World Bank organization. And it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that that implication, rather that implies that these companies weren't built with their foundation, keeping people happy or how to increase happiness levels in their company. So you came in as an intervention or as a consultant to just teach or show them some ways to paradoxically increase productivity without trying to increase productivity, which would be how to make people happy in their workplace. What is happiness? So you mentioned these new industries, you mentioned these new companies that will arise, the jobs that we probably don't even know exist or will exist. So if you had to build from scratch a company, how would you factor in the foundation of happiness? What would be the, the recipe for a founder to really put this as top of mind, which, like you argue in your work, leads to so many indicators of success metrics, which are productivity, income, revenue? So, so first of all, just to, to your question, many of the companies that I've worked with have been doing a lot when it comes to happiness. And they brought me in because they wanted to do more. They wanted to learn about the latest research um, in this area. So the assumption that, you know, only companies that don't have happiness, you know, invite a happiness expert, you know, that that's that that's inaccurate. Okay. Um, there are many companies, and Google is one great example, who do so much for their employees and 
they're constantly looking to doing more things, better things hmm. uh, among their um, in in their workforce. Um, now, what would I do if I was creating a company for scratch? It's the same that I would do if I was uh, coming into a company that's been around for 150 years. And that is, I would do what I call a spire check-in. A spire check-in I do on the for the individual and I do for, for organizations. And it's basically going through the spire elements, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional, and asking for each one of them, um, how am I doing? How can I do better? So for instance, under spiritual well-being, you would have meaning and purpose. How am I doing as an individual when it comes to meaning and purpose? Um, let's say I give myself a six. Why am I six? How can I become a seven? Not a nine. How can I become a seven? Incremental change. Or I start a new company. Um, so we have a goal. How can I introduce this sense of mission and purpose that I experienced maybe as a founder? How can I introduce it throughout the organization? Or uh, let's say under physical well-being. How can I make sure that I as an individual and that my employees are physically active? The food that I bring into the organization, if, I, if there is food there, let's make it healthy. Let's make, uh, not, not just tasty, let's make it good for our body and for our mind. When it comes to physical well-being, recovery ends up being very, extremely important for dealing with stress. Because think about stress. You know, you stress your muscles in the gym. Not a bad thing. You actually grow stronger from it. But if you stress your muscles in the gym and you have no recovery, you get injured. And it's the same psychologically. If there is recovery in the workplace, recovery can be about deep breathing. Recovery can be about lunch. Recovery can be about going to the gym. If you have recovery in the workplace, then the stress that is a natural part of every workplace is actually going to help you grow rather than bring you down. Intellectual well-being, the eye of Spire. How can I make sure that employees continuously learn? You know, we just talked about it. If they don't learn, then they'll become obsolete very quickly. Machines yeah. will take over. Um, so intellectual well-being is important. Relationships. How can I get people to hang out together? You know, there's a lot of talk now about um, remote work. Yeah, you know, there are advantages to it, but don't give up on face-to-face in-person interactions. That's how you develop the best relationships. Emotional well-being. How do you create a workplace where people feel safe, psychologically safe, to, ex- to express emotions? How do you create a workplace where gratitude, appreciation for one's own work, for others' work is, is part of the environment? These are all questions that indirectly will contribute to to happiness and to more productivity, more creativity, a better organization. Wow. And for us individuals, you've created, you've founded the Happiness Studies Academy. And I would love to hear more about the work you do there and how can one get involved in the Happiness Studies Academy and what do you wish to to for everyone who enrolls or looks for more information to to know about it well the purpose of the happiness studies academy is to help our our students um, become happier and to help them help others do the same 
And um, so we have students who um, come in because they want to be better parents. We have students who are there because they want to be better therapists or coaches. We have managers. We have teachers who apply these ideas in schools because, you know, happiness contributes to, to any field from therapy to education to business to government and law. Um, and and the way we do it, we, ha we have a few programs. So one program that we have is a certificate in happiness studies. Um, and a second program, which we just launched, uh, which I'm very excited about, is uh, a master's degree, the world's first master's degree in happiness studies, wow. which we offer with uh, Centenary University. And um, the all our programs are online. So we, we have students from over 75 countries, which is uh, an amazing experience being in uh, in webinars or, or meeting them because we have meetings all over the world. Um, and um, and again, the purpose is for us to um, to bring about more well-being, more happiness, more flourishing in organizations, in schools, uh, in homes, communities and nations. I love that. I will add all of the information in the show notes. And I'm curious to know, Dr. Ben-Shahar, you know, you've, you've mentioned 75 nations across the world who, who tune in. How do you see the differences in nations, in backgrounds, in terms of, of mm. happiness? Yeah, so, you know, there are many differences uh, among the nations, among different cultures. At the same time, there are even more similarities. Similarities, yeah. Um, you know, a human being is a human being is a human being. You know, we all want a sense of meaning and purpose at home. You know, I may, because of my culture, find it more in, in individualistic pursuits and someone else may find it in more collectivist pursuits. You know, we all need physical exercise. Um, you know, I may find my physical exercise, you know, playing basketball and someone else may find it playing cricket. Mm -hmm. um, but we all have universal needs and it's quite amazing you know so just earlier this morning i had one of our webinars with uh with with our students and and again students from all over the world and and, and people from uh, uh china and vietnam and and saudi arabia and israel and uh and mexico and and, and brazil and us and 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 all in cameroon we're, we're talking about um ideas that were relevant to all of them hmm. how they apply it uh, may differ but the idea is the universality of these ideas is um, is is remarkable wow yeah like you say we're all part of this big blue marble or little marble if you want to put it in that perspective in mm -hmm. this whole dark sea of the universe and we all share this collective desire to you know make the best out of our time on earth which essentially involves getting this this distillment of of more joy more happiness without it being the outcome the end goal but dr ben shahar thank you so much for joining me this has been really insightful and thank you for the work that you do and i'm looking forward to to getting to know more about the Happiness Stories Academy and hearing more success stories from your students. So thank you for joining me. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much.